Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to episode 16 of the Knowledge Exchange podcast. This podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and in all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project to advance our understanding of effective knowledge exchange to improve the learning of Canadians. You can download this episode as well as one of four future episodes in the series from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net. From iTunes directly, just search for KM Podcast. Alternatively, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. Dr. Ray Dayanandan is a scientist, thinker, teacher, novelist, and explorer. Not fitting easily into any one discipline or structure, he spans the boundaries between several worlds and shares lessons between each, perhaps an archetype of the knowledge broker that is emerging as a defined role in many organizations. The conversation we had in Ottawa was profound and humorous, focused and expansive, much like Ray's approach to his work. I think that you will appreciate his grounded examples and his ability to link the difficult concepts to stories. Human history is grounded in storytelling, so is knowledge exchange. Sit back and enjoy a fun ride. I'm here in Ottawa with Dr. Ray Dionandon. Ray, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, Peter. Uh, as Peter mentioned, I'm Ray Dionandon. I have uh, several hats that I wear. Uh, quite disparate, it may appear at first, but I think there's a common thread that runs throughout all of them. First, I am the owner of my own consulting firm, Dionandon Consulting, which provides epidemiological health research, health policy advice, and services to a variety of clients. I'm also the co-founder of an international company, uh, VAC International, which provides uh, mostly program valuation services for international development projects. Uh, as well, I'm a professor at the University of Ottawa, where I teach classes in health research and in international health theory. As well, I am a part-time journalist and a novelist, and the ways in which all of these seemingly disparate careers meld together is that they're all ultimately about communication. Communication to a variety of audiences, using a variety of formats, and towards a variety of different ends. In the descriptions around knowledge exchange, it, one of the ways that it's most commonly referred to is bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. What, what does this mean to you? How do you how do you think about knowledge exchange? Knowledge exchange, ultimately, knowledge exchange. I think you'll agree is just the sharing of data in its most basic form. But as we know, as anyone listening to this podcast will recognize, it's it's a bit more than that. Uh, when I think about knowledge exchange, I think about the original exchangers of knowledge, Og, the inventor, the inventor of the fire. And when Og invented fire, he had to somehow share this invention with his fellow tribe mates. And he took his invention to Shmog, his brother, and said, "Shmog, look, fire." And Schmog says, what fire? And Og had to find a way to describe what fire was. That was um, the first instance of knowledge exchange. And then when Og wanted Schmog to recognize how to make fire, Og had to find a way to conceptualize, to communicate the actual mechanics of making fire. That wasn't enough, because then Og had to explain to Schmog why he needed to make fire. So there are three elements in play there. One is describing the thing that Og had invented. The second was describing how to access and create the thing. And the third was describing the context in which the thing would be valuable. And those three elements put together, I think, form what we consider to be knowledge transfer, exchange, mobilization, whatever you want to call it. So how does this relate? I mean, in the one thing that you didn't mention is the work you're doing as a scientific advisor. Mm. How would, and why don't you talk a little bit of the context of that and, and what knowledge exchange means in that context? Well, it's much like the Ogshmog example. In all kinds of science, ultimately you are trying to find a way to convince non-technicians about the value, the mechanics, the intrinsics of a technical concept. Not just the technical, but the abstract concepts as well. If I'm dealing with a client, most of whom tend to be government policy types, uh, and I'm dealing with a very um, uh, cutting-edge technology, such as assisted reproduction, which, uh, which I do a fair bit of work, I must be able to on the one hand, fully 
understand uh, the mechanics and the implications and the context of the technology myself before I can then go forth and explain it to others. Then I must uh, not only explain it to others, but then to understand how it impacts them in whatever their um, job description might be and in whatever their lifestyle description may be because ultimately we're not dealing just with professionals, we're dealing with people as whole human beings and that's going to taint how they receive whatever information I offer to them. So what is the greatest challenge of dealing with people as whole human beings as opposed to their job description or the institution that they work in? Ideology, it comes down to ideology and by ideology I don't mean just political or religious, I think it's whatever construct you originate from as a whole human being. I'll give you an example from the world of global health. If we are dealing with uh, an HIV intervention, a uh, needle exchange, ultimately these kinds of interventions are going to be tainted by one's moralistic viewpoint, regardless of what kind of evidence you're presented with. And ultimately, one's moral viewpoint is going to trump evidence. I know often when dealing with knowledge mobilization, we talk about the hierarchy of evidence, how different studies, different kinds of scientific endeavors gradate various kinds of evidence. The RCT is supposed to be the most perfect kind of evidence, for example. But all that is irrelevant if you're approaching the, um, the issue from a perspective that is tainted by one's moral viewpoint. Abstinence is the obvious example in the global HIV conflict. I say conflict because it's many ways of war. I'm not saying that abstinence does work or doesn't work, but I am saying that one approaches the issue from a perspective of already having decided it's worth before even looking at the data. Let's bring this to the concept of, of lifelong learning. And Canadian Council on Learning is, is putting forward uh, practices, ideas, uh, methods for engaging in lifelong learning. And I want to draw in your experience as a novelist. Mm. Uh, in another interview that I did, the, the person that I interviewed referred to literature, to reading a book mm -hmm. uh, in their own time. Um, in this case, it was fiction, but it was fiction based on real events that contributed significantly to his understanding of a complex set of, of, of events. H how, does, how do you think about lifelong learning, given that you do learn, that you personally learn across a whole series of areas? I'm going to ask that in two parts. First is that um, uh, the novel is an example of a narrative. Any kind of communication we offer under individual is an example of narrative. Unfortunately, the last few decades, technical communication has been rendered non-fun. <laughs> it's been made as inhuman as possible by not having a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's just straight data. And I think it's important to, to bring it back to this uh, organic human feel that Og and Schmog originally uh, communicated using. When Og brought his fire to Schmog, he said, look, Og, fire. Fire, good. Fire will do this. End of day, fire make you happy. There's a story there, a narrative. And I think gradually we're inching back towards that approach. Now, the second part of of the answer has to do with the ways in which these, this embracing of narrative contributes to lifelong learning. And there's no question that if you really take a step back and look at the ways in which we uh, engage in our world, every time we interact with another human being or a piece of information, we are learning. A piece of information can be data on a page, it can be a TV show, it can be touching the surface of a table. You are learning something about that table. Any kind of interaction you have with your universe is an example of learning. And it's important for you to be able to contextualize that learning in whatever sort of... The word I'm looking for is difficult. It's, it's not the mechanism so much, but it's a, a manner in which you can place the elements that you have learned within the context 
that is most appropriate for your functioning in your world. Is lifelong learning a state of being? Is it a yeah. way of being in the world? It is a state of being. In fact, it's unavoidable. Everyone learns lifelong, whether they like it or not. The difference is that some uh, um, acknowledge this learning, others do not. And the further difference being that those who acknowledge it may also be able to actually uh, employ it more fully than those who are not acknowledging it. Let's talk a little bit about that in terms of one of the ways that I've described knowledge mobilization or the facilitation of knowledge mobilization is having incentives in place to engage in this kind of practice as well as uh, infrastructure to support it. So if we're to look at knowledge mobilization, knowledge exchange, lifelong learning from an incentivized mm. perspective or an infrastructure perspective, what does that look like? You teach students in a classroom. We all have in our mind a picture of what a classroom looks like, and there's variations on a theme, but that's an infrastructure that's supposedly supposed to incentivize, right. or it, it provides an infrastructure, provides a place where people are going to gather, mm. and then they get a degree out of it, and that degree is supposed to lead to benefits within their lifespan. Reflect a little bit on, on that, that. That's a difficult question. Okay, the kinds of <laughs> interventions and infrastructures needed to facilitate lifelong learning, they include an appreciation for the role of example and the role of real-life experience. Uh, in a university uh, context, for example, you're learning in a classroom, often you're given theory, you're given textbooks, rarely are examples given to students that is pertinent to their experiences. So when I teach my students, I always try to give them hundreds of examples. I'm giving uh, a lesson on study designs, uh, epidemiological study designs. I can talk about, if we're doing a randomized control trial, comparing this migraine drug versus placebo in a double-blind format, blah, 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 blah. Or I can talk about, well, if uh, you wanted to date two different girls, you're thinking, well, which one is more appropriate? Maybe I could choose. You know, you make it more relevant to their experience. And that um, brings it home. It brings it closer. And then you can expand the radius to encompass more abstract and more boring, more technical examples. I think um, that's a strategy of learning, but that doesn't speak to infrastructure quite yet. The infrastructural components come in when we start uh, strategizing um, co-op placements, for example or um, textbooks that aren't just the dry technical textbooks, but bring in narrative again. I think um, <clears throat> I'm a big fan of using novels to teach science. There's a series of novels written by um, Arthur C. Clarke and Larry Niven and some other people that each deal with the same challenge in different ways. The challenge is launching a payload from the surface of Mars to orbit. And within a fictional context, each of these authors found a similar but different way of doing so. Each time it involves something called an orbital tether, in which you build a space elevator from the surface of Mars to an equatorial orbit. And each time they both encountered the same kinds of challenges. Uh, for example, the moon Phobos um, orbits around Mars at a certain um, uh, period that interferes with any sort of construct that you build from the equator. How do you solve this problem? One author decides to oscillate his elevator. Another author decides to have an, uh, a shuttle going from part of the elevator to another part of the elevator. The point being that using narrative, using fiction, a scientific problem was solved and investigated and explored in a way that regular science could not even dream of because we cannot do the experiment right now. We can't go to Mars right now and build a space tether. So we have to be open to the idea of bringing in um, untraditional and more organic or more human methods, approaches, contexts, constructs into solving our problems and to communicating scientific ideas. Part of the narrative or the conversation that's going on about knowledge exchange in that we're supposed to transfer what we know with great certainty that shows up in systematic reviews mm -hmm. in order to get the, you know, the right information at the right time to the right people so that we're supposed to make decisions. And what you're saying 
if I'm hearing this correctly, is that it's a much more fluid, organic process built on human relationships, built on conversations, built on creativity. Uh, how how do you how do you deal with this this movement in the you know the evidence-based decision making, which is about you know limiting <coughs> all of that creativity to say, okay, well, we actually know this for sure. That's what we're supposed to transfer. Well, first, there's um. um two domains to be explored here. One is the domain in which we have a serious decision to be answered, to be made rather, or a question to be answered. And that's where we enter into the realm of um, using the evidence pyramid to make sure we have the, um, the data that is most defensible except to take to policymakers. The other domain is the uh, domain of um, idea generation. And that's where we're in this fluid, dreamlike state of using stories and narratives and, and brainstorming to think up most obscure and abstract ideas possible. But beyond that, I think it's important to always remember that every thing that comes out of our mouths ultimately has some guesswork attached to it, ultimately has some fantasy attached to it. The most rigorous science that we can possibly conceptualize and make happen ultimately involve a bit of guesswork and a bit of abstractness. E ultimately, even um, the most evidence-based policy recommendation one can make to one's client, to one's policymaker, is going to be based a little bit on one's personal biases, a little bit on one's personal experiences, a little bit on, upon one's dreams. And so I think it does the world a disservice to always assume that all science is scientific. You mentioned evidence. Mm -hmm. When you s hear the word evidence, what do you think of? As an epidemiologist, evidence has a certain very strict meaning. It means certain kinds of studies that are most defensible and the others that are least defensible. Roam anywhere from the least defensible, which would be the, a case study, to the most defensible, which is the randomized control trial or the systematic review of randomized control trials. That's the most rigorous and dry and game show oriented response I can give. However, evidence is more than that. Evidence is uh, any kind of experience that informs the question. All that means is that those less rigorous experiences fall lower on the continuum in terms of rigor than do the ones we recognize to be more rigorous, such as the RCT. I think in the future, in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to find that more and more research is being done on these less rigorous approaches. We're finding, for example, that um, non-traditional medicines, holistic medicines, autistic, um, alternative medicines, etc., do not respond quite as readily to the allopathic Western methods of investigation. And the reasons for this that are often given is that Western methods of investigation assume an objective reality, whereas the Eastern methods or the holistic methods assume a more subjective reality, which by the very nature cannot be investigated using objective methods. If that's the case, then we have to reconceptualize what we consider to be evidence. I know I'm speaking uh, airy-fairy, um, fantasy land kind of stuff, but I think it's valuable stuff considering that we're in a world in which non-allopathic treatments are already becoming quite uh, quite prevalent. One of the elements that I, I've been discussing with people is around, you know, given how complex this is and that there's, mm -hmm. a, there's an aspect of emergence, that it's going to become what it is in the process of becoming. Uh, the concept of leadership then comes in, and there's many different forms of leadership. If you were to th think about leadership from the perspective of lifelong learning or leadership from you know, evidence-based practice or leadership from knowledge exchange, how do you think about leadership? You've been identified as a leader per this in, in a different kind of set of concept, except that you're not a traditional leader. You don't hold a position of power.
power in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. Yet your ideas have influenced people. They influence. A, they're influencing a generation of young people who are studying global health right now. You're influencing your clients through your consulting work. You're influencing a scientific process through your advice. So talk to me about leadership. Traditionally, leadership has been about one person standing in front of a group, giving orders, projecting authority and confidence. But it's more than just that, obviously. I think increasingly leadership is about providing inspiration and example. One can be an example leader by showing uh, a non-traditional method of thinking, by showing and embracing organic and uh, universal method of, of, of uh, absorbing various constructs into one's decision-making process. That's what I'm trying to do, actually. I don't want to order others around. I don't want to lead a lot of organizations. I don't want to give people orders and pass down policy to those beneath me. I don't want to have anyone beneath me. What I want is to be able to live my life and to learn through my life and, and so forth and do my job as well as I can. But at the same time, if I must be a leader, I want it to be through showing that I have thought through my decisions thoroughly using whatever evidence was available. And by all evidence that we talked about already, not just the evidence presented through science, but the evidence presented through my senses and through the arts and through the humanities, etc. So again, to, co- to come to the question of leadership, uh, I think increasingly society is appreciating that leadership uh, leaders come in a variety of cloaks, not just the heterosexual 50-year-old white man in a power suit in front of a, a boardroom, but also in the, the younger individual in his jeans and running shoes who's having thoughts in the corner and writing them down and other people are reading them. Is there a generational is- issue? Are we seeing a shift in what leadership looks like? To some extent, to some extent. I would caution against uh, broad strokes like that because we have a tendency to view the world through our cultural lens. We're looking only at the, co- uh, at the examples in North America, specifically in this chunk of North America in the East, etc., English-speaking North America. But the rest of the world is still moving along in that, um, the cult of personality methodology, that the leaders are those who shout the loudest and most eloquently. The younger people have at their disposal new technologies. There's the internet, which comes with it, email, uh, discussion groups, wikis, etc., that allows for uh, faster formations of like-minded individuals into groups. It allows for faster communication. It allows for uh, the brandishing and the publication of viewpoints through anonymity that otherwise would have been shouted down through various kinds of peer shaming. So we're into a new realm. There's no mistaking that, uh, a realm in which uh, new ideas are reaching prominence much faster and are reaching to climb much faster as well because the internet and other kinds of identity masking technologies are allowing this to happen. Having said that, I think there is an innate human tendency to gravitate towards the cult of personality. So regardless of the power of one's ideas, it's the method in which one expresses them that ultimately will win support. Let's talk briefly about technology. You were an early blogger, as, as was I. Technology is considered important, and in some instances it's described as in terms that, you know, it's almost a panacea, it's a cure-all for what ails us. In other conversations I've had that, you know, the formula is technology is 10%, 90% of this is social. The exchange process is fundamentally a social relationship, and that technology can help leverage those relationships. Where do you, where do you fit on the technological piece? I'm most definitely in the, the latter camp, where technology is the mechanism or the device, the tool that allows us to finally discover this enormous need, this thirst for social interaction. Interaction has always been there. One Im- important thing I want people to remember, to remember is that um, on your way to work today, you probably saw more people on that single commute than the average human being saw in their lifetime 100,000 years ago. We have 
ingrained in our DNA a desire to see people, to seek out social interaction, seek out community, but all of a sudden we have orders of magnitude more people with whom to do it with. And there is as yet no method to sort through that, that disparity, that disconnect. Now we do have that method, if one's willing to plow through the internet to find the appropriate tools. Um, so the internet has allows us to, to form those small tribes, those small groups again that we had a thousand years ago. So this genetic yearning we've had to form the tribes is finally being addressed through technology. And I think this is going to prove to be quite a, a potent um, tool for readdressing and rediscovering a certain creative side to it that's been that's been silenced over generations of crowding. I mean that's really interesting. I don't I hadn't thought about it in that perspective. There's an awful lot of talk about knowledge exchange, knowledge mobilization. In your opinion, what's the greatest benefit for engaging in this in a conscious way? The greatest benefit is that we strip away the misdirection. I think if we speak or we communicate without thinking about that which we are trying to communicate, we run the risk of miscommunicating um, falsehoods. Sometimes we communicate, miscommunicate falsehoods intentionally. I guess it's not miscommunication, it's an intentional communication. But ultimately, we are seeking truth. Uh, truth in reality and truth in construct and as well truth in deliverance. And by that I mean science has always sought truth or claims to have sought truth. Only with the advent of quantum mechanics have we realized that truth will always be one step beyond us. Now with the advent of, of serious thinking about uh, knowledge exchange, we suddenly realize that not only is truth always one step ahead of us, but the communication of truth is two steps ahead of us. So recognition that um, there exist these filters between us and reality allows us to better correct for those filters or to better um, cash or to phrase our policy decisions or our pronouncements more forgivingly in recognition that truth isn't fully appreciated. In 10 years, we've seen a growth, especially in health, of the practice, the evidence, uh, the methods for knowledge exchange. And we've come a long way, a long way in the last 10 years in 10 years into the future, and don't limit yourself just to health, mm -hmm. where's the field of knowledge exchange or knowledge mobilization going to be? Well, my understanding is that knowledge mobilization is relatively new. I know it's been around for decades, but only now it's, it's reaching the kind of prominence that it's automatically built into people's grants. For example, you must have a knowledge exchange strategy built in. Um, given its earliness and given the growing appreciation for its importance, undoubtedly, it's going to explode in 10 years in terms of importance, in terms of complexity, in terms of um, maturity. And by maturity, I mean uh, most people still don't realize what it is. Go to any kind of policy meeting and people will talk about their knowledge exchange strategy. They just think they mean uh, publish some papers or have a talk afterwards. Rarely is it fully appreciated that knowledge exchange or translation mobilization means uptake as much as broadcast. Not just to publish, but be able to understand. And um, I think what we're going to see in 10, 15, 20 years, one hopes, is that people f uh, more fully appreciate the importance of being an active listener, or an active reader, or an active recipient of information, not just being someone who publishes some stuff and walks away. Everyone has to play an equal role, being a part of a complicated, interactive society that stresses the importance of sharing accurate information that appreciates this two steps from reality construct, for lack of a better word. Ray, thank you. It's always thank you. a pleasure. Uh